Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stuttering Springboard, a podcast focused on helping young people spring to the next level in life and educate the population on what it means to be a person who, who stutters and the experiences that they have. In this episode, Ryan Nolan is joined by Michael P. Boyle, Associate Professor of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Montclair State University. They will be discussing the pivotal topics of of stigma, avoidance, mindfulness, and disclosure in 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 a stutterer's world. Welcome to the Stuttering Springboard. In in this program, we are going to get real as it relates to what it feels like to be a young person who stutters in today's world. I'm Brian Nolan. I'm here with Michael Boyle, Associate Professor, Communication Sciences and, and Disorders at Montclair State University and author of countless articles on public opinion, stigma, avoidance and disclosure related to stuttering. Uh, Welcome, Michael. Thank you very much, Brian. It's great to be with you. You know, I, I, as I said earlier, I've, I spent uh, many, many hours researching all the great work that, that you did in this field. And uh, I hope one of the things that the Nolan Stuttering Foundation can do is to bring that work out to, to help, help share it uh, with with um, the population at large. Uh, so this podcast is really going to get at public opinion and stigma, which is something that you focus a lot on, avoidance and disclosure related to people who stutter. Um, so I've got a bunch of I got a bunch of things that that I want to ask you because uh, you you're a research guy and you got into this field. I, I want maybe ask you to give us some background, how you got into the field of stuttering research, and then, and then specifically on the stigma associated with people who, who are stutter. Um, what, what, what was your passion around this? Yeah, um, so I, I got into it because I'm a person who stutters myself, and I've stuttered since I was probably about three, um, and it was a struggle for me growing up. Uh, It was a big challenge. Um, I was sort of bothered by it. I tried to hide it a lot. Um, It really limited me in a lot of ways in terms of communication in general. So as I grew up and um, went through the uh, teenage years and into college, I started to think about what I wanted to do uh, for work. And I I realized that I had spent a lot of my life thinking about this this topic, uh, and I thought um, that I, I I knew the impact of it. I knew that it could be very hard on people because I had experienced it myself, and I just felt like there was something maybe that I could do to help other people, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah. And so that's that's kind of how I got I got the idea to get into it. And then about stigma. Um, that was really just when um, when I was in graduate school and thinking about what I was going to be researching. I was reading a lot of psychology literature and research articles, and I came across the work of Patrick Corrigan and many other researchers who do work in the area of mental illness. 
and talking about stigma in that field. And it really resonated with me, uh, even though they were talking about mental illness, uh, the kinds of things that they were talking about really rang true in terms of stuttering as well, not not to equate the two things, but just that a lot of the shame, the anxiety, the negative public reactions, it seemed very much in common. And there's many other conditions too, obviously, that that are stigmatized, but it really just kind of jumped out at me. And I thought this would be really interesting to look at in the context of stuttering. And so I've spent the past 12 years or so or more now, I guess, uh, looking at this issue of stigma, how it applies to people who stutter um, and what can be done about it. So so uh, if you could define stigma for us, just in the simplest terms, mm. when you define stigma uh, for this this purpose. Sure. So um, it's it's tricky to be simple about it, actually, because it's such a, a small term and yet it encompasses so much. But I would say that it's um, a signal in some way that you're different from other people in a way that uh, looks negative to those other people. So there's a characteristic or a trait or a mark. You know, Irving Goffman is kind of wrote wrote the seminal text on stigma um, in the early 1960s, and he he described it originally as a mark of shame. Uh, but then what's happened over many decades is that there's been a lot added to that definition. So we're now seeing that stigma is not just a mark of shame. It's really context dependent. It depends on the social environment around that person mm -hmm. in terms of judging what is a mark of shame and what's not. Um, so I guess to try to be simple about it, it's a characteristic that uh, is devalued in the eyes of other people. Um, and the consequences of that, of that negative reaction in terms of stereotypes and prejudice and discrimination. Yeah, I mean, uh, people stutter because they're nervous, right? Like that's a stigma. Uh, and um, in some respects, I, I think we own this. We own the um, we own the the road to stopping the stigma. We own it, and uh, how how we as people who stutter respond to the stigma is um, is so important. When when did you begin to disclose to people that you stutter, and what what was that like, and what's been the impact? Mm. Wow, uh, yeah, I think the the first time I can really remember disclosing strongly was when I was probably in my early 20s when I was in graduate school. So this was even after graduating college. And I was in a program for speech language pathology, and I was still very covert about it. Um, not to say that other people didn't know that I stutter, because people did, but I just didn't want to, I didn't want to talk about it, and oh. I was avoiding it. Um, so I think um, when I was at Penn State, because that's that's where I got my my master's and my PhD, I had an advisor named Gordon Blood, who was uh, a real mentor, not not just an advisor, a real mentor and a real guide for me in my life at that very important time in my life. Um, and it was incredibly, I you know consider myself just incredibly lucky and fortunate that I was there with him at that time. Uh, before he, he retired. Um, and he really kind of changed my life, to put it, you know, succinctly. Uh, he got me to 
open up about it, think about it differently. He questioned, made made me question a lot of my beliefs about it, my assumptions about it. And so it went from like, this is a terrible thing that I need to hide at all costs to actually it's not that big of a deal. And you have a voice that that deserves to be heard. Mm -hmm. And I remember he actually said something once that really impacted me. He said uh, a lot of things that 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 really impacted me. But something like, you know, you're you're depriving people of your voice Mm -hmm. if you don't speak up and if you're not yourself and he didn't quite put it exactly in that way but that's my paraphrase of it was you're actually so he sort of flipped it for me i thought that i had to kind of keep the lid on it and he was like you're you're really limiting yourself and so that was effective therapy because it got me to, it was not just about speech modification it was about changing me as a person and i thought about it a, a lot differently after that uh time in therapy that i had with him so yeah it's interesting i mean that that's probably uh, the biggest cause of why, why we're doing this podcast program is so that young people can get off the sidelines and become the best versions of themselves so, that, so they're not depriving the world of who they are and, and depriving themselves. I want to peel back something you said because it, it's something as an older person who stutters, I still deal with. So I'm pretty good at disclosure now, right? I, I, I share it. I tell people. In fact, I tell as many people as, as I can. It's kind of funny that I do that now at going out with couples and things. However, help me figure this out. I'm still totally uncomfortable stuttering in front of people. Like, so the two, the dichotomy that exists there is huge. And I think a lot, like I, every time I stutter, even on this podcast, I still feel this little bit of shame. Like I should be fluent. Why am I stuttering? And so how do I get, I'm asking a big question. How do I get from comfort in talking about it to comfort in stuttering? Because I feel, and I felt like it's a flaw that I've had my whole life. How do I do that? Well, that, that's a big question. And um, I, I can relate to that as well, actually. And in my research, uh, a lot of the people that I've spoken to about disclosure actually say something similar, which is that it's one thing to say, I'm a person who stutters. It's another thing to actually do it in front of people because you're, yeah, because you're really kind of exposing yourself and being vulnerable. It's not just like, I think if you say it, but you're not actually stuttering, you're kind of at a distance from it. Yeah. So you can say, oh, and and it can also be framed in a way like, well, I stutter, but look at me. I'm so fluent right now. It, right. it almost makes you feel. <laughs> so there, there is a, it is another step, I think, to really uh, just stutter in front of people. That's, it, that's very challenging. Yeah. It, it, well, it's the ultimate acceptance of mm. it. I mean, we talk a lot in my work with young people about acceptance and, you know, it doesn't mean you have to like it, um, but you accept it. Um, uh, well, let, let's, I'm going to peel back some of your articles. I, I think more of the world needs to know about your work. Okay. So okay. I, I've, I, I've done several, um, questions here. I, written several questions. One, uh, you authored an article about transitioning from concealment to uh, openness among adults who stutter. Many people who stutter spend a lifetime hiding it. Uh, can you talk about the, the uh, turning point in people who, who stutter when they move towards openness? What are some of the catalysts to make this transition happen? Mm. Yeah, I think that one of the big catalysts is just reaching 
um, you might say rock bottom or something where it, it's not true maybe for everybody, but a lot of people that I spoke to, and I can relate to it personally as well, you're kind of backed into a corner almost of like realizing that, okay, the way that I have been dealing with this is not effective long-term. So for a lot of people, for example, they have a job interview that goes terribly. Uh, they, um, they're they used to avoiding, but all of a sudden their avoidance tactics just fall apart and they're left exposed and they can't speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there comes almost a crisis moment sometimes where the person says, I don't know what I need to do, but I know that whatever I'm doing right now is not is not going to work for me long-term. Something has to change. And they're willing at that moment to try things that they'd never tried before. So things like voluntary stuttering or being open about it, just because they've had so much experience trying to conceal it, trying to minimize it. And eventually the pain and the sacrifice that comes with that hiding you know, catches up with them and the pain of uh, staying the same outweighs the pain of the uncertainty of what comes next. And they're willing to make that jump. Yeah. You know, my turning point came um, a little differently, but I have, I have talked to a lot of people uh, that they, they had no choice. I mean, people who were lawyers who had an experience in court that was terrible. And they realized I need to, I need to deal with this head on. Uh, for me, I think when I turned 50, um, I, I, I realized that, that I had this pebble in my shoe that was becoming a rock in my shoe uh, that I, I, I needed to do more, that I wasn't fulfilled, that I couldn't leave this world um, until I had sort of become truthful with myself. And I'd become a pr- pretty successful business coach um, and realize that some of the stuff that I do in coaching professional CEOs, I could use those same skills to help young people who stutter uh, disclose and become open. And so I, I just, uh, I had this, we had this term, you know, you probably heard this term growth and comfort don't coexist. So I, it was scary. I gotta tell you, it was scary for me mm. yeah. making that final and it, it, because it came sort of late, but can I tell you the freeing experience that it was? Oh yeah. 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 I, I can relate to that. It's, it's like a weight off your shoulders. Oh. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was like, okay, I can die now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was yeah. kind of like, you know, um, can, let's discuss the psychosocial impact of, of openness or disclosure for, for people who stutter going from before to after, what impact do you see in people? Yeah, um, a lot of people that, um, I, I did uh, a few studies with a researcher named Rod Gobble, uh, who's at Binghamton University in New York. And we looked at this process of disclosure and being open about it. And a lot of what we found, people said things like, um, uh, I feel more free. I feel more authentic. Authentic. It, yeah. yeah. That's that, a big word. A big one. Yeah. I feel more spontaneous. I feel more like, um, like me and, and also more present 
in the situation because now they're open. They're not thinking they, they don't have as much of the cognitive burden of trying to pretend to be something that they're not. They're just sort of themselves. So they had more presence. They enjoyed communication more normally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of people found that the listener too appreciated them being open and, um, uh, it kind of opened the channels of c- communication. Um, sometimes it even strengthened the relationship between people because if you're open and vulnerable about something that you're a little uncomfortable about, sometimes it kind of breaks down that facade. When you meet somebody new, you're trying, you know, you tr- can tr- try to p- portray yourself a certain way. And so this um, kind of breaks down that wall and it can actually help people establish deeper connections with others. Of course, not all the time. It's not like in every single interaction, but in some cases it can actually help relationships to strengthen. Um, So there's, there's a lot of benefits, but those are some of the ones that uh, jump out to me right now. So, so we know, we know it's helpful. We know this from our own experiences and, and, and all the research you've done helpful for the mind of a person who stutters. How, how, can we get more young people to disclose that they stutter when they're spending all of their might trying to hide the fact that they stutter? The idea of stuttering, the idea of telling people is like the exact opposite of what they're trying to do. How do we convince them? Right, yeah, um, I think number one, probably better therapy out there um, because a lot of therapists in my experience don't really teach disclosure. The traditional model of stuttering therapy for many decades, and there's exceptions to this, of course, but the standard therapy is sort of like, let's change how you talk and get rid of stuttering. And that's what they put all their energy and effort into. They put all their eggs in that basket, so to speak. And they really leave, a lot of clinicians just leave that out. And I don't really know why, but because it seems like it would be such a common sense thing to teach people. How do you talk about this? How do you let somebody know that you stutter? And it's harder than you think though, because even though that sounds very common sense, um, how do you do it in a way that's socially uh, acceptable or appropriate, or that's not gonna make you feel awkward? So there's a lot of uh, fundamentals that have to go into that. You can't just really tell a person to be open without, laying the groundwork, so to speak, with them so that they feel better about their stuttering and that they feel more confident in expressing themselves. Um, so I, I think it's better therapy. I think what what you're doing, for example, uh, with, with your work and uh, self-help groups uh, like the NSA and Friends, for example, they have workshops, they have support groups that, you know, you can learn from other people who stutter and get that support. So um you know, it can't be rushed, probably. It's just a matter of giving people good models. Mm-hmm. I think that's the most critical thing is just showing people, hey, here's how I do it. Um, you know, if I'm giving a speech or if I if I meet somebody new and say, oh, you might notice I stuttered and so I get stuck sometimes. It doesn't have to be anything huge. It doesn't have to be this big, like, heart-to-heart moment. It could be very nonchalant. Um, and very neutral. And I think with younger kids, if you don't make as big a deal out of it normally. They tend to digest it better. So it's not anything like, uh, you know, that they have to disclose this terrible thing. It's just sort of like, hey, I stutter and I just want to let you know, you know. I think we need to be talking about it earlier in families. It it was something my family never talked about. Just my 
mom and dad now and again, we, you know, put me in speech therapist therapy. And, and you're right, the speech therapists are are taught sort of motor skills and and you're practicing easy onsets. We're talking here a lot about the psychological aspects of stuttering um, and uh, which really gets us into mindfulness. Um, I, I love I love the mindfulness concept and I, I know you've written about that. Um, can, can you talk about maybe some healthy mindfulness practices for people who stutter? Mm. Yeah, so that, that's been an interest of mine for many years, mindfulness, uh, apart from stuttering, but then I sort of you know, realized over time that there's a, a good link between the two. Um, so in terms of stuttering, I would just say, uh, I think general mindfulness practices that, that anybody could do would have a good carryover effect on things like managing stuttering because it helps you become normally a bit more calm in your body. It helps you monitor and be aware of what's happening in your body, but also in your mind. Um, you sort of are able to observe your own thoughts and your own feelings from more of a neutral standpoint. Mm -hmm. So it, it kind of helps in my perspective to prevent the tension from just escalating indefinitely. If you are, if you can be quiet and peaceful with your body. So, um, you know, for example, uh, I, I do 20 minutes of mindfulness in the morning and I try to do 20 in the evening, although uh, with two young kids, that doesn't always happen. But um, I try to make time when I can to just be quiet, sit silently, look at my thoughts, breathe deeply, um, feel the physical sensations of my body, the weight of my body, feelings in the body, um, a lot of like my stomach going in and out as I'm breathing, the air coming in and out of my nose and mouth, um, the internal sensations of what your body feels like from the inside. I mean, these are all things that can be done. I don't really have anything, you know, specifically for stuttering that I pair it with. Honestly, it's more of a general full body, full mind practice, but I do feel like it makes me feel more grounded. It makes me feel better. And that in turn probably has a good effect on, on my speech too. Uh, because you have to be aware when you stutter, you know, if you're going to try to change, for example, how you make speech, which not everybody agrees is, is even necessary, but if you want to do that, you kind of need to be aware of what's happening in your body. So I think the skills that you learn in mindfulness uh, are, are very good at transferring over to the skills needed to monitor and then modify speech. I, I would sure love to see, see more therapy, more, more of this sort of um, integrated into, into speech therapy. Um, I, I, I want to relate this to uh, what we call avoidance. And anybody who stutters uh, knows that we spend a lifetime avoiding any, any situation that we think is going to be problematic for us, whether it's ordering a type of latte at Star Starbucks or whatever we avoid, we avoid. Um, and um, I guess two questions. Can we, let's talk about the negative spiral that avoidance has. I, I have a, a phrase, it's not mine, but the only way out is through it. And um, what I've learned about stuttering is the more you avoid, the more you will stutter. Um, and the less you avoid, the more you are, are you. And um, so what have you seen as this negative spiral uh, avoidance and, um, 
and, then, and the impact. And then how can mindfulness result in decreased avoidance? Mm. Yeah, I think the spiral is what, what I always uh, think about, and I teach this to my students, is you think about we all as human beings want to avoid pain and seek pleasure. So we're all doing that every day normally. We don't like to go into pain voluntarily in most cases. So it's natural to avoid things that you're afraid of that make you uncomfortable. But the problem with stuttering is that if the pain and the fear and the anxiety is linked to the act of speaking itself, all of a sudden life becomes very limited. So even though in the moment a person may be avoiding because they wanna avoid pain, let's say they don't wanna speak up in class or they don't wanna introduce themselves or they don't wanna make the phone call because they're afraid that they're gonna be reacted to negatively. And they don't wanna go through that again because they may have experienced that already and it hurts a lot. So they just might wanna say, I'd rather not do that. And um, that makes sense at a certain level because we do wanna avoid pain as people. But the problem is um, if, that, if that turns into every speaking situation, you're gonna have a very limited life eventually. So even though it's a short-term um, win, so to speak, that you're avoiding pain, long-term, it becomes even a bigger problem because now your life is very much constrained. So I think it takes a little bit of, um, very often, you have to go through, like you said, there's no way out but through. You kind of have to go through the pain a bit. You have to become a bit more courageous sometimes. You have to let go of a lot of the control and the desire to not be perceived a certain way in order to long-term feel better. Um, so it's a tricky thing because people don't want to do that sometimes, and it's reasonable to see why not. But uh, And then in, in terms of mindfulness being relevant to it um, and helping to reduce avoidance, in mindfulness, you're ordinarily taught to... Um, lay out the welcome mat, so to speak, for negative feelings, negative thoughts, negative sensations, mm -hmm. and just let it be there. So it's almost like a mentality of when you meditate, no matter what comes into your mind, no matter what you're feeling, maybe just letting that be there for the moment and not, not fighting against it, not reacting to it. Because if you react to it and you fight against it, it keeps spiraling. So can you be there with it? Uh, and just go through it and experience it um, and sit with it like it's maybe not a friend, but somebody who's sitting next to you and just kind of coexist with that. So the same mentality can be in terms of stuttering. Can I coexist peacefully with my stuttering and not let it really drive me and bother me so much? Yeah, that's, that is good stuff. I, 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 think, I think the mindfulness practices, getting better at it will definitely help reduce avoidance, mm. all right? Because you'll be open to those thoughts. Um, I, I, did you get a chance to, to read Chris Anderson's new book, Every Waking you know, Moment? I, I, uh, I just um, read a few blurbs about it, but I haven't actually read the book yet, no. Yeah, so I'm, I'm like, I'm blown away by it. Um, in, in his uh, transcendence, section, he talks about the uh, stuttering lens and how, you know, every waking moment, the uh, stuttering lens puts every situation through this lens of how, you know, with, with this anticipation of, of what that event's going to be and how to avoid stuttering in that. Um, I read an article that, that 
you wrote that talked about enacted stigma, which is um, the actual negative treatment that someone gets from, from stuttering versus felt, felt stigma, which is the anticipating negative treatment. And so I, I really tied this in with uh, Chris's book um, to the stuttering lens and the stuttering lens of the felt stigma that we're putting. So we, the, the felt stigma is we avoid because we, we know if we stutter, we're gonna be judged poorly, or we think, right? What, what are some methods to reduce felt stigma? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought that up. I actually have some some new research that's yet to be published, but I hope it will be out relatively soon. But um, it actually shows that what you mentioned, the felt stigma part, which is sort of the embarrassment, the fear, the anxiety about it, um, about being reacted to negatively is one of the strongest aspects of stigma, even more so than um, the actual experiencing of negative public events. It's it's more sort of lopsided toward the felt stigma as being really critical. Um, so how do we tackle that? Um, there's a lot of ways of doing it, but I guess I would say a few things. One, um, uh, since we've already talked about it, I can mention it again, is disclosure and being open about it. That has a real shame reducing effect very often, especially if it's done in an open and powered way. Um, so being more open about it is a big one. I would also say um, sort of a cognitive therapy, like there's a branch of therapy in psychology called cognitive behavioral therapy, no, which is, it. yeah, it's, it's all about kind of looking at your core beliefs, looking at your assumptions about the way you speak about yourself. I mean, it could be about anything, but, um, you know, in the context of stuttering, it might be applied to how you communicate, what you sound like, how other people perceive you. And the goal of that therapy is to really get a person to challenge those beliefs because we have them deeply ingrained from childhood very often, and they're hard to break. They're hard to change because we've lived with them so long, we take them for granted. So of course, people will look at me negatively if I stutter. That's just the way it is. And this gets you to really you know, challenge that. Is that really true? How much do you think that's true? What would happen if you really stuttered? You know, so it it kind of forces a person to confront those things. So that's that's an, another one. And then I would probably say, um, as I mentioned before too, the support and the community and the groups and getting together with other people who stutter um, can be really important to show people, hey, you know. There are other people like me. It's not a shameful thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just another trait that I have that many other people have too. Um, and there's a lot of great people out there who stutter and it can almost be inspiring and they can learn from other people. So I, I think that those are some of the key things that jump to mind to reduce that felt stigma. You know, the, the CBT theories have helped me personally. I, I've read a lot of CBT books, cognitive behavioral therapy for dummies, just to, to be able to look at, look at my thoughts and, you know, write down my thoughts, journal my thoughts and say, is that really true? And, um, as sort of a, sort of the start of mindfulness uh, for me to really understand what's going on. Um, let, let's get a little bit into, uh, personal perception, uh, in one of your studies and your, uh, webinars or your, uh, videos, you, you address three types of methods to improve public attitudes uh, towards toward stuttering. The protest one, where public pushback 
you talk about how, how can you do that? Like the, in the case of Starbucks, when someone couldn't say their name and like they was like, that's terrible. Uh, second is education. And third is uh, interpersonal contact. And your study found that interpersonal contact uh, is the most effective way. Uh, yet it's very difficult to get people to talk more uh, about it. You, know, you mentioned earlier friends, the NSA, what, what is being done? What have you seen um, efforts based upon your research to really increase general interpersonal contact? It, it ties into to some of the other things around disclosure. I'm talking about really public efforts. I mean, we even have a president who stutters and there's only been limited interpersonal contact. Obviously he had that young boy speak, uh, uh, which was awesome. Um, but this interpersonal contact, in other words, Michael, how do we take your work and really get it out there so that we have a campaign around interpersonal contact? Mm. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, one of the things that, that I was really happy to see a few years back was um, there's a therapy group, which is really well known in the the United States and globally, actually, it's called the American Institute for Stuttering. And they they were doing a workshop that I think was based off of these findings about interpersonal contact and not just the contact, but what are the effective elements of it? Like, because you can't just assume necessarily that if you're open about your stuttering and you talk about it, it's going to have a good impact <laughs> on things like it needs to sort of be tailored. It needs to be done in a certain way in order for that message to really hit home to the audience. So a lot of my work has also looked at that. So I know that, for example, AIS did something where they had um, a workshop or a campaign where they, they had people, I think, who were previous clients of theirs who were giving these videos, like a five-minute uh, disclosure that they would post online, and they would use the elements that, that we found in our research as being effective. Um, so for example, you know, you talk about the struggle of it and how stuttering is a challenge, but you don't just say that you say how, um, you can still be a really, you know, successful person and you can have a career that involves a lot of talking and I'm no different really than anybody else. I just talk a little differently, but don't treat me, you know, as anything different. And so there are all these different, um, oh, and then I, I should also say at the end of it too, there's a message for what you want the listener to do. That's one thing that I always encourage people at the end of their disclosures, if it's more of a formal disclosure, uh, like you're you're educating people about it in your town or at your local uh, library or wherever, um, that you give them something that they can, that that they can hold on to and say, this is what this speaker wanted me to do. So when I talk to people who stutter, I will make eye contact. I'll keep eye contact. I won't interrupt them. Um, I will listen to what they're saying as opposed to how they're saying it. I, I you know, mm -hmm. so something tangible that they can walk away from and feel more comfortable interacting with people who stutter. So I think that was an example of a campaign that, uh, that was, you know, done online and that was really nice. And then at, at other levels, it's kind of, um, you know, people I think have used the idea of pr protest education, certainly to write newspaper articles, for example, that are critical of like 
for example, the Starbucks incident or other things like that, and educating people about myths versus facts, uh, you know, things like that. So I guess at the macro level, there are educational campaigns that have to do with the media, but at the micro level, at a person-to-person level of just being able to feel confident disclosing their stuttering and knowing what that message should include if they want it to be perceived well by other people, I suppose. Mm, Beautiful. Well said. Um, So Noel Stuttering Foundation's podcast here is called Stuttering Springboard. It's it's the springboard because we want to help um, young people spring to the next level in life that is often problematic when someone's in eighth grade and they think about going to high school oh my gosh like this 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 whole felt stigma thing right and this whole avoidance that someone's in high school the thought of going to college then when someone's in college the thought of a career um so there there are these these levels um can can you provide any insights any thoughts on like the eighth grader out there uh and how does some of your research apply that, that they can use? I mean, they get bullied. Um, and so then high school students and college students at different levels to put your mindset back. I could tell you when I was in eighth grade, I don't know that I was mature enough in my thinking to disclose anything but hide. Hmm. Yeah. So, so Let's let's just talk about the eighth grader and then let's talk about the high schooler. Okay. And then let's talk about going in from um, college and because I I work with kids from ages 13 to 24 uh, in that range. Um, I know I'm asking a lot here, but it's a struggle to get young people to even attend a workshop. Right. Right. I think you're right. Um, And I would. I would say too, though, that if you can if you can get them at that age, they can become the future leaders of this movement, so to speak, because they're at the precipice of adulthood, and so it can be hard to get them because they're teenagers. They have a lot of other things going on. They may not want to stand out from the crowd. Uh, so there are those pressures, but also on the flip side. If you can reach them and connect to them, the payoff can be huge at that time in life because they are well positioned to be the next generation of the support groups and the leaders of the field and things like that. So um, I suppose it's um, uh, trying to connect them now that we've been through COVID and everybody is doing things virtually now or they've, they've at least experienced that. There's a lot of online support groups as well. If they're not near somebody, they can meet other people who stutter. Uh, They can go to a conference. They can open those lines of communication. Uh, And importantly, if they're in therapy, they could, um, this is why good therapy is so important to have a therapist who knows about stuttering, who's able to model different options for how they could live with stuttering. It's one of the most critical things, I think, is to have an adult or an authority figure, somebody who has credibility to say, you know, you can stutter openly. It's not going to be the the end of the world. Um, it's not going, it, it doesn't have to stop you because for a lot of people, their therapy is once you get fluent, you can do what you want to do. 
but you, you got to get fluent first. <laughs> and for a lot of people, that's just the wrong message. I think once they have therapy or support experiences that emphasize you can really be who you are, a lot of people just never get told that. They're, they never get that message. And so they grow up thinking it has to be hidden. It sounds so simple, but it's one of the most profound things I think that anybody can hear is you're okay as you are. You can stutter. It's okay. Um, I didn't hear that until I was in my early 20s. A lot of people never hear it. or I never heard know. it until I was probably 50. Right. So, uh, it, it was, um, you, I mean, you're, you're really speaking of the great work that Joe Donaher does. Mm-hmm. I mean, Dr. Donaher, it's, it's the first thing he does is he makes it clear that I'm not here to fix your stuttering. Um, I'm, you know, I'm here to help you become you and be okay with who you are with it. And, uh, and he, he's a big fan of, of, uh, open stuttering and, uh, fake stuttering to get, get yourself accustomed to doing it in front of people and those items. So, um, yeah, Joe, Joe is great. I I've attended a few of his, uh, you know, camps and workshops and things, and he is a master at that, you know, in terms of making it fun, making it playful. He's very, he's very funny too. So he sort of makes it into a humorous sort of lighthearted thing. So he, he's great at that work. And that's, we, we need more people like, like him, although it's, uh, hard to find, but, uh, that that's, um, a good example of how to reach kids of that age because he he works a lot with the, those age groups as you said so yeah i think it's just giving people other models for how they could live with it instead of just concealing it that's one of the most critical things and then they'll learn from that model i think they'll internalize that not not everybody maybe maybe some people at certain points of their life they're not ready for that yet but yeah. i think that's probably one of the best things that you could do is just have them be exposed to that way of of thinking certainly to be sure so let me end with this what's next for you what what are you working on? What do you uh, What do you want the audience to know um, about um, the good work you're doing, and how how can uh, you know this podcast and Nolan Stuttering Foundation help in the future to get your get your work out there? Mm. Yeah, great. Um, well, in terms of my research, I, th- I think I mentioned this a bit um, earlier that I have some new findings that I I uh, writing up and eventually send them out t- to hopefully get published uh, sometime soon. But that's really adding on to the stigma work. I- I'm kind of refining a few things and defining things more precisely. Stigma is is a small word, but it's it, it's a very confusing term because it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So I'm trying to disentangle a lot of the confusion about that uh, by measuring certain variables and defining them and just kind of really getting clear about this thing called stigma and how it uh, links to stuttering and communication. So that's one project. Um, and then um, I have uh, looking at the the impact of discrimination on people who stutter as well. And then um, I'm working with a few of my colleagues from other institutions on a project we, uh, relevant for what we talked about t- today, actually, because it's about mindfulness and looking at mindfulness in people who stutter and seeing if it's linked to uh, their communicative uh, functioning, seeing if the, if there's a link between 
a person who has more mindfulness, let's say, and their ability to express themselves and to feel good about themselves. So those are a few things um, that are kind of um, in the work, so to speak, uh, th that'll keep me busy for, for a while. And then, um, you know, just in terms of what, what you can do to help, I think this is a big help just in and of itself is it's always a privilege. And I'm always very grateful to talk to people like yourself who are doing things at the ground level to um, get kids and teens and young adults to be open about stuttering. So just spreading the information, um, having an open dialogue, getting it online and uh, disseminating it to other people so that they can see it and talk about it, maybe have their ideas changed a bit too. And if you can reach people through media, uh, that's that's a great way to do it. And it makes people feel not so alone. So uh, I think that this is a great uh, thing that you're doing as well. Well, I, I'd like to have you back next year, um, if I could, because the podcast by then um, will be pretty large in terms of an audience following. The, you are the first guest, Michael. This is Michael P. Boyle. Um, and I wanted Michael because of just his abundance of research uh, on this issue. and. Uh, the, the podcast, the Stuttering Springboard, is going to be on all the podcast channels, uh, Apple and Google and Spotify, anywhere where you can get a, a podcast, you can find us. And um, so thank you uh, um, so much for your work. Really, it's it's the, you know, gratitude and really probably the bravery of when you were young to go into this field to really seek answers and to help uh, help form a better public opinion and then help people who stutter uh, have less felt stigma. Mm. Well, th thank you very much, Brian. It's been a real uh, privilege to speak with you and to spread this, uh, this message. So thanks again. Excellent. Good luck to you. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Take care. Nolan Stuttering Foundation's primary purpose is to bring young people who, who stutter together and help them become the best versions of themselves. We do this through programming design to help them share and navigate the unique communication and psychological challenges they experience. NSF helps pre prepare young people to take the next step in their, their lives. For ideas and contributions to our podcast, Contact us at info at nolansf.org.